Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. When it comes to having amazing, mind-blowing sex, we're often our own worst enemies. We're holding ourselves back. Shame, secrecy, self-doubt, fear of failure, all of these things have a way of interfering with our ability to pursue pleasure. What this means is that in order to have great sex, we need to work on ourselves first and change our entire sexual mindset. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. We're going to talk about how to discover what it is that you really want from sex, how to communicate your wants and desires effectively with a partner, how to cope with fear of sexual failure, how to navigate sexual disagreements, and how to build up your sexual self-confidence. I am joined by Yana Talon-Hicks, a couples and relationships therapist and sexuality educator. Her work centers around the belief that pleasure-positive and consent-based sex education can positively impact our sex lives and the world. She is author of the new book, Hot and Unbothered. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, so stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Hi, Yana, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the world of sex therapy. So what is it that drew you to this field in the first place? I feel like there's a long story that starts when I was 14 years old and was like, why is everybody so into sex? But like, no one's talking to me about it. And then there's like the short version or the more recent story, which is that I started writing the sex column and then I started teaching workshops and then more and more and more people were asking me if I offered couples therapy. And I was like, well, waiting tables, which was like my real money-making job was getting really tiring. So I decided to go to grad school and get my degree. And so I've been doing sex therapy since 2016 or 17. I can totally understand the journey from people asking you about the sex questions and then you wanting to have the answers and going back to school to kind of be able to help people address those questions. So what do you love about being a sex therapist? What do you find to be the most rewarding aspect of the job? I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm working and then I'll zoom out and be like, wait a minute. I just talked about someone's non-monogamy drama all day, followed by a kink situation, followed by like a sexual awakening situation, followed by a person that tried something new that they were afraid to do and it worked out well. But I'm able to really look at what my work entails. I feel so lucky that I just get to dive into like what I think, and I feel like you probably also think is an extremely fascinating topic. And I get to talk about it all day with people who trust that I'm going to hold what they have to say and be accepting. And I feel like that's a real gift. 
And I feel like I really benefit from being able to talk openly about sex and sexuality with people. I can totally understand that. And certainly that is one of the things I like about my job too, is that every day there's some new, interesting, fascinating aspect of human sexuality to explore. Let's talk about your new book, Hot and Unbothered. You have a wonderful way of describing things that is very accessible and very relatable. And one example of this is the idea of sexual imposter syndrome that you discuss early on in the book. And I think this is an experience that most of us have probably felt at one time or another. So can you please describe what sexual imposter syndrome is? And for someone who might be struggling with it, what can they do about that? Sexual imposter syndrome is basically good old fashioned imposter syndrome, but as it relates specifically to your sex life. And I think that there's at least what I see in my work and also what I just see in my personal life is that there's a wide range of sort of what can set us up to feel like sexual imposters. So on the one hand, it might be like, I feel like I haven't had enough experience with sex to like really have the kind of sex that I think that I want to have. On the other hand, it might be someone like you and me who's like really saturated in kind of sex and sexuality and sex positivity, but is also a human being with like insecurities and mistakes and flaws and like humanness. And that can feel like imposter syndrome. I feel like for some people, it could be based on this mainstream ideal of what we've been told is sexy or what a sexy body looks like or what a sexy person is or what a sexy relationship is. That can feel like an imposter syndrome can crop up. And essentially, I feel like most people know what imposter syndrome is at this point, thanks to social media, but it's essentially feeling like you don't belong where you are, or you're not quote unquote qualified or deserving to be there. And most of the time, when people feel imposter syndrome, they actually are exactly where they should be. And it's mostly that they just don't feel that way for a variety of reasons, a lot of reasons being systemic and societal. And so when we're thinking about moving through that and feeling like we deserve to have the sex that we want to have and we deserve to be here and explore and make mistakes and relate and all that stuff, a lot of it is based on understanding that sex is a joint experience for most people. It's collaborative if you're having partnered sex and that this idea of like failing or making a mistake or learning something new or not knowing everything right away that is all a normal part of a healthy sexuality and actually makes for really great sex because we want sex, I think, successful, authentic, pleasurable sex is like a living, breathing, moving thing that we are creating as we go and we're learning new things and we're building on it. And it isn't actually what we've been told it is, which is like, I know all the fancy pretzel moves and I know exactly how to give a blowjob perfectly or whatever. And here I am executing it on this person without even having talked to them. And everybody's having simultaneous orgasms and like la-di-da. And so in the book, I talk a lot about perfect sex is imperfect and that being okay with imperfections is a really great, I think, kind of like first, second or third step to getting to a sex life that you really enjoy. You have a great way of putting that, you know, perfect sex is imperfect. And, you know, totally. so many of us have this idea that sex should be perfect every time we do it. And we set this really high bar, these really high expectations. And then that just makes that fear of failure even stronger. So I think you're totally right that part of this is about just having that cognitive reframing and allowing for the fact that sex isn't going to be perfect every time. And that's okay. So 
Let's talk a little bit about sexual self-confidence. I think that for a lot of people, sexual self-confidence is something they think about in terms of having certain skills or techniques, such as having a lot of sexual stamina or knowing how to give really great oral sex. And that can certainly be part of sexual self-confidence, but in and of itself, that might not make you a truly confident lover because confidence is also about having some resiliency in the face of setbacks. It's also about being adaptable and flexible and responsive to your partner's wants and needs. Now, you talk a bit about confidence in the book. So can you tell us how do you conceptualize sexual self-confidence? What does that mean to you? And what are some practical ways that people can try and build up that sense of self-confidence? Because I know this is something a lot of people struggle with. Yeah, that's a great question. I really like your definition about like part of confidence is being resilient in the face of setbacks. In the section in the book about sexual imposter syndrome, it talks a lot about that bounce back is like a big part of it. Feeling like, you know, the phrase failure is your friend is a part of it, right? It's a learning experience. Not everybody is like an expert going into a demonstration of their expertise when they're having sex. But I also think, at least for me, when I think about sexual self-confidence, like what helps me feel confident, a lot of it is knowing who I am, knowing what my limits and boundaries are and what I desire, which a lot of the work in the book is around, like, how do you know your own limits and how do you set those limits clearly? And also, how do you know who you are and what you want? There's like a very extensive yes, no, maybe list in the book that I think is a helpful exercise to do on your own or with a partner. And I also think a good sex life is not built on these very sort of like rote checkbox skills. They can help, right? Like knowing some skillful ways to do oral sex or anal sex or kink stuff or whatever, especially with kink, right? There's risk involved. Or, I mean, there's risk involved in all sex. So like having a skill level and understanding risk and skill is important. But I think if you don't also have these relational skills of communication advocating for yourself, hearing no, knowing how to set your boundaries, then none of that skill stuff is really going to stick. Like if I'm over here, just like doing this acrobatic thing, my ex really loved to you. And it's not your thing. Like I'm not being successful. If I can talk to you about what it is that you are interested in and what really gets you to like tick and also what share with you, what helps me tick and where that overlaps that's going to be the best possible sex is what's in the middle of that Venn diagram for us. Absolutely. And you mentioned something in your answer about that fear of failure. And this ties in with something else that you address in your book and more broadly with this idea of sexual imposter syndrome is that in order to have truly amazing sex, we have to become friends with failure and recognize that not every sexual experience is going to be mind-blowing. And you might try something that turns out to not be enjoyable or maybe you're going to share a fantasy with a partner and they're not into it. And that fear of failure can really hold a lot of us back from having really pleasurable sex. So I think part of this too is also kind of just recognizing that there is some risk anytime we try something new, share something new about ourselves with a partner that it might not be received well, or maybe that things might not go exactly the way that we want them to. But what can we do to sort of become better friends with failure and prevent that from getting in the way of having really good sex? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard because there's so much stacked up against us in terms of sex and sexuality, right? It's like, 
how we learned about sex, what we learned is or isn't okay. And when we're thinking about your example, right, of sharing a fantasy, if one of if we get up the guts it takes to share a fantasy, especially if we've been told that that fantasy is taboo, that's a whole bunch of work right there anyway. And then we share it with our partner and then our partner is like not into it. You know, even worst case scenario, our partner isn't into it and they're like mean or shaming or like yuck about it, which like maybe that's on the partner for you. <laughs> but, you know, that can really be hurtful on a lot of levels because it's not just being told no, but it's also being told no about things that we may have told ourselves no about already or socially been told no about already or had to work through a bunch of shame layers to get to a place of understanding that was our desire in the first place. And so it has this huge impact. And then sort of psychologically, right, or like in attachment theory, that impact is also registering as a threat to our connection to our partner. So then we're flooded with all of this like deep rooted, like evolutionary psychology, like, oh my God, I'm being separated from my pack. And that's just kind of running in the background. And then we have our like cognitive thoughts about like, what does this rejection mean? Does my partner think I'm gross or like, whatever. And so hopefully when we're thinking about building confidence and finding failure and rejection as positives, we're able to build more sexual self-esteem where I can say, it's okay that I'm into this. I feel totally fine with who I am sexually. My partner saying no to me actually isn't really about me and my things being wrong or not wrong. It's actually about my partner's preferences, their boundaries, their limits. This doesn't really mean that we're forever incompatible. We are just not necessarily compatible about one zone. That makes total sense. And it kind of leads very nicely into my next question that I had for you, which was when it comes to sex, a lot of us don't get what we want because we don't even bother to ask for what we want. And I think that so much of that is tied up in this fear of failure and fear of our partner rejecting us or saying something that's going to be hurtful. And so part of being able to get what you want is building up that sexual self-confidence and dealing with that fear of failure, coming to terms with it in some way. And you also talk a bit in your book about how you can more effectively communicate about what it is that you want. So apart from working on yourself and sort of having that cognitive shift or reframing in the way you're thinking about this, what else can you do to make it easier to communicate about what you want with a partner? What are some practical tips there? Yeah. So in the chapter about asking for what you want, I tried to break it down into two different categories. Because when I think about asking for what you want out of sex, we have like asking in general, right? Like saying like, do you want to have sex? <laughs> what kind of sex do you want to have? When do you want to have sex? What supplies do we need? What do we need to know about each other? And then there's like asking in the moment, right? Like, can you adjust to the left? Like, can we switch positions? I would really like it if we blah, blah, blah right now, or like, I need a break. And I think that both of those things get so much more solid over time and with practice. Because often we have this sort of like, I tell my clients this all the time that like our negative messaging to ourselves is a slow drip in. And so it's also going to be a slow drip out. So like the slow drip in is like what we've heard from media or our parents or our upbringing or our negative self-talk or whatever that has told us that we can't ask for the things we want or that knowing what you want and asking for it in sex is somehow wrong or not okay. 
And then the slow drip out is going to be like, we're going to have all these different experiences where we're going to take a risk, take a deep breath, ask for the thing. And then maybe it'll go well, or maybe it'll go neutrally, or maybe it won't go well, but we'll have strategies on how to bounce back from that, you know, from what we were saying earlier about imposter syndrome and confidence and seeing failure as your friend, that's going to buffer you against that. But if it goes really well, especially if your partner choice is is compatible in the sense of like, can we communicate? Then you're going to have that kind of slow drip out of that negative messaging over time and feel more comfortable. And then I think the communication will flow a little bit easier. I think you're so right that communication is, it's a skill that you have to build up over time. You do have to start somewhere. And I know it can sound really intimidating and feel really awkward the first time you do it, but with more practice, it becomes a lot easier. So you have to build up that courage and confidence first and then just start practicing it. And eventually you'll have an easier time communicating about those things that you want. And I think it's also important to recognize that there are all different kinds of ways you can communicate about your sexual wants. And as you said, you can do that with a direct request. You can also communicate it non-verbally or by moving your partner's hand to where you want it to be on your body. You know, there's all kinds of ways you can kind of get started with communication, but you have to start somewhere. Now, since we're on the subject of what we want, you also have a chapter in your book on how to discover what you want. And as I've said on this show many times before, sometimes you don't know what you want until you try it. And if you haven't tried many things before, you might have a pretty limited idea of what you do and don't want from sex. So how can you discover more about what it is that you want sexually? Yeah, I think this one is really interesting because I have a lot of clients that are super into like sex positivity or they think that sex is like excellent, like they've processed all of these kind of like initial barriers to sex. And then they're like, but I don't actually know what it is that I'm really into. And so part of the question is like, okay, well, do you need to know right this second? You know, I I work with a lot of clients that are looking to open their relationships for the first time. And sometimes they get nervous because they're not sure, like, do I want a second relationship? Do I just want a fling? Do I want like whatever? And it's like, well, you don't know those people yet. Maybe you don't know what you're going to want out of this relationship structure until you meet the people you're going to relate with. And I think what you're saying too, is like a lot of it is like a guess and test. Like on paper, we can be like, this sounds great. And then in reality, you're like, oh, like, having sex with my stilettos on in the shower is actually very hard. And like, it was hard for me to enjoy the rest of what was going on because I kept sliding all over the place. And again, we're back to communication, right? So it's like, if you, I do consent education as well. And a lot of the time I'll talk about how it's totally possible to consent to trying something. And so I think like the enthusiastic consent model is great and amazing. And I talk about that as well in my consent classes. But I think if we're hung up on like, I have to be enthusiastic about this, we can stop ourselves from trying something that we're just not sure about. So I feel like it's totally okay to consent to being like, yeah, I think I want to try this stiletto thing. I don't know how it's going to go, but like I'm into trying it with the commitment that you're going to communicate every step of the way. And if it's just not working, pull the plug, get like a plan B going on. Both of those, I guess, could be great sex puns. And continue on your journey with all your consent intact. And if you need to edit something, try it twice. My general rule is I'll try anything twice. 
Because I feel like the first run is a dry run. And then the second run, you're kind of like working out the, the kinks. Also, both good sex puns. <laughs> I am on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I totally say the same thing about when it comes to trying out a sexual fantasy that you should try it out at least twice, right? Because especially with something like fantasies, it often takes a bit of practice to perfect it. So for example, if you're talking about having a threesome, you know, it's one of the most common sexual fantasies, but I actually find that it's the fantasy that works out the least well when people actually go to do it. And I think that that's in part because many of us just don't have a script for how this actually goes when you have multiple partners at the same time. And different people might have different ideas for kind of how the situation should go. There's often not a lot of advanced communication about how this is all going to work. And so I think that that can make it a little bit challenging. And there are some people who have had threesomes who just swear it off because they found that experience to be awkward, but maybe it's because they weren't approaching it in the right way. And if they had the right partners and the right level of communication, maybe it would be a pleasurable and positive experience for them. So it's not just true for threesomes. It could be any type of fantasy that you're acting out. It takes a bit of practice, a few tries to figure out whether or not it's something that is actually for you. Totally. And I feel like, especially if you're talking about like, first of all, having three people in a scenario at once, somebody's always going to have indigestion or like someone's having an off day or like whatever, having like, as you know, even with two person relationships, relying on this idea that we're all going to have the same amount of sexual energy, chemistry and desire at the same moment is like, not typically how it goes all the time. And I think the more bodies you add, the more true that is. And then also with like things that involve skill or technique, like learning how to use a new sex toy or like trying out a new kink thing, doing any kind of rope tying in a safe way takes a lot of practice. So if you have like this rope fantasy and you like do the rope thing and it takes you like 45 minutes to figure out this knot, you might be like, oh, this isn't for me. But if you figure that out and you can do it in a way that's a little more organic, maybe you'll be like, oh, now I can like engage my erotic mind and not just my like, how do I tie this mind? <laughs> so some stuff does just take practice. I also think that in terms of figuring out what it is that you want, I think that engaging in like erotica of any kind, whether that's like written, read, I was listening to your episode about for sexual fantasies with who is your guest narrator? Rose Carraway. Yes. And, you know, there were like a little erotic snippets in there. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, on my lunch break. But I think like engaging in erotica or even listening to podcasts about like certain fantasies and stuff that you are kind of interested in, but might not be familiar with, it kind of builds in this like information that helps you feel safe with that fantasy so that you can then kind of kick back into the erotic place. So let's say like you had a four sex fantasy, but you were like, is that wrong? Is that bad? I don't know. And you were able to listen to a podcast that kind of filled in those logistical gaps. Then you're able to kind of have that safe container where your kind of exploratory fantasy mind can sort of play. And I think that like masturbation is a great way to figure out what kind of things you're into. Your brain is able to really like kick back when you don't have an audience or another person in the room. I also think just casually talking to your friends about sex is like really interesting because you hear what other people are doing and you might be like, oh, that actually sounds interesting. I'm going to go look that up now. 
I think that's all great advice. There are so many different ways to expand your erotic mind. And so when it comes to figuring out what it is that you want, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go get really kinky right away and try everything. Part of it can just be exploring different types of porn or erotica, or as you said, having these conversations with people, opening up that dialogue about sex is one way of just sort of figuring out what am I curious about? And then once you sort of figure out your curiosities, then you can sort of map out what it is that you actually want to try. And as we've said, sometimes you'll try things that'll work out really well. You'll love them. Other times they might not go so well, but try everything twice just to make sure. <laughs> Unless it's a total disaster the first time and then don't bother. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. So since you teach workshops on consent, let's talk about consent for a moment. And you also brought up this idea of enthusiastic consent, right? Which is the way that a lot of sex educators are currently teaching about sexual consent. But it isn't a model that works for everybody. You know, some people think that, you know, the way that we're teaching about consent these days just doesn't sound sexy because it feels like you have to check in with everybody at every step of the process and like have a legal contract and all this other kind of stuff. So can you give us some tips on how can you make consent sexy? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see this in my workshops, especially when I go to high schools, because I think high schoolers have been given a lot of formal consent education now, which I think is excellent. However, they're starting to do what high schoolers do, which is kind of like get sick of, you know, quote unquote, the man or like the systems that are kind of keeping them in place. And I hear from a lot of high schoolers in particular that traditional consent education that focuses really heavily on the dangers of the lack of consent, which are all totally real. But when it's that heavy of a focus, there ends up being like this sort of false gender divide in the room where the young men or boys, they really feel like they're being told that they're unsafe, dangerous, and bad, and that they have to be afraid of fucking up, and they need to sign that, get that contract signed. I've heard that joke made in high school classes many times. And then there's like this other divide where like everybody else in the room feels like they have to be afraid or protected or on the alert for these other people. And I think, first of all, that doesn't acknowledge the spectrum of gender and how consent or the lack of consent can play out in all different kinds of relationships. And second of all, I think it totally ignores pleasure and it repeats this very old sex ed standard that we've had where sex education is all about what is scary and bad and what you shouldn't be doing rather than looking at this from a pleasure positive lens. And so I really like to teach consent to adults and to youth as something that is part of pleasure and is part of a pleasurable experience. And it's creating a container of safety so that you can have fun and do all this like stuff within this container and not feel nervous about it or like you're not on the same page. I also think that consent really benefits everybody involved, which gets missed in a lot of that fear-based consent education, where it looks like you have to get consent from this vulnerable party before you can do a thing. When in reality, like if I want to like try something spicy with my partner and I haven't talked to them about it or I don't know if they're going to like it or if they're into it, like why would I want to, it's like throwing a tennis ball into the woods. Like what kind of a game is this? Like I need that bounce back feedback that like you are into this or you want to do it or like it's hot for you. 
if I'm doing something with a partner that really makes them hot, that makes me feel hot. And it's like that snowball effect rather than like, I need to like get you to sign this consent contract so I can act out this thing on you. That's just not a two-way pleasurable experience to me. And I think really like this book started out as a zine about consent, essentially. (laughs) But my approach to consent has always been pleasure focused. Because I think if people understand that consent actually makes sex more pleasurable, they will be organically more interested rather than afraid to engage. And I think that that is really the doorway that I see. I love and agree with everything you just said. And, you know, I'm on board with this idea that partner pleasure is really the hottest thing. Like, and when you know that your partner is really into it and you're bringing them a lot of pleasure, that is a very hot part of sexual activity. But I also really appreciate you bringing up the point about fear-based sex education. You know, on the one hand, it's easy to look at the rise in teaching about consent, you know, because this is an issue that has long not been given the attention that it should in U.S.-based sex education. But when it's coupled with all of this fear-based information, that has the effect of just making everybody scared of sex. And so I love having the more pleasure-focused approach to sex. And that pleasure-focused sex education can also be used to promote safer sex, right? So if you can talk about how usage of condoms, for example, and the act of applying them can be an erotic activity in and of itself, that actually makes people more likely to use them and it makes them more enjoyable. So I think having that pleasure focus when we're talking about safe sex and consent is so, so important. Unfortunately, it's just not the dominant model in U.S. sex education. And there are certainly better models of sex ed. You talk in your book about how everybody has a boner for sex ed in the Netherlands. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I've done a whole episode on, you know, sex ed through a cross-cultural lens, and we do a deep dive into that. And, you know, so there are models that work better than what we're doing here, but that pleasure focus is, is really important. Now, when you're in a sexual relationship with someone, you're inevitably going to hear no at some point, right? For example, you might initiate sex and your partner turns you down, or maybe you suggest trying something new during sex and your partner declines. That's normal. It happens all the time. But a lot of people take this personally and they interpret their partner's no as their partner doesn't enjoy sex with them or isn't attracted to them anymore. And you have a whole chapter in your book on how to hear no like a pro. So can you share a couple of tips on how to avoid letting no turn into self-defeating thoughts and relationship conflict? Totally. Yeah, this is a tricky bit of, I think, consent and pleasure education, which is like this flip side of like, what is your enthusiastic yes, really also requires us to understand what is our no and what's our partner's no's and can we make space for no to be there? Because we can't be like fully in a yes place with pleasure if we don't feel safe enough to say no. And I think people will get, I see clients get in these kind of dynamics all the time where like, saying no is inherently a safe practice, but has become kind of loaded because like there's tension in other places in the relationship, or there hasn't been enough communication about what they're, what this no is coming from or what it means or any of that type of stuff, because there is this like immediate sort of like 
flash emotion when somebody hears no of your saying like rejection, shame, self-defeat. And I think that if we can understand that our partner is continuing to communicate with us, even when they are saying no, it doesn't have to be like a wall that is like splitting us apart. It can actually just be a part of the communication process. So I, we talk, or I talk in the book about this big, heady concept of differentiation, and I'm not going to go into it right now because it would just take forever, but there's like a good two chapters devoted to differentiation. It's essentially a process of being able to maintain your own sense of self, even in the face of your partner's own sense of self, which sometimes requires somebody to say no to you. I also think it's really helpful for people to get curious about what happens when a no comes up. So either getting curious about like what that means for your partner, if they're open to that conversation, because sometimes people just need to say no and like not have you go any further with that conversation. I also think it's important to get curious about what's coming up for you, right? It's like, why was that particular no hard? Is no always hard for you? Or is it just around this one thing? I think it's worth looking at no as part of like this larger landscape of your sex project being just like part of it. It's not like this like big end, unless the no is a big ending no. But when we're talking about handling no like a pro, we mean like building it into your sex life as you go along. And I think people just get all twisted up in this idea that if somebody says no to them about something, it means this like big universal rejection. And most of the time, if this is your sexual partner, that's not true. And so how do you kind of break that down? Instead of reacting to your emotion, responding to your emotion in a negative way that does push your partner away. It's okay to feel like sad, shame, or bummed out because you wanted to do something and your partner didn't. That's totally fine. But it's not fine to like pout, withdraw, punish them in some sort of emotional way. Like all of these ways people react because what they're really trying to do is protect their own feelings. How can you like get above that initial reaction and continue to connect even though you feel disappointed? And so a lot of the strategies in that chapter are about that kind of emotional management. I love all of that. And I think it's so important in the context of this broader conversation about consent. You know, we talk so much about the yes, but how do you deal with the no and what does that mean? And especially in the context of an ongoing relationship, how you interpret this. So I think that's a particularly valuable section of your book. Now, related to this, in relationships, it's common for partners to not always be on the same page about sex, right? Where one partner wants more or a different kind of sex than the other, and that's where the no's often come up. And in terms of dealing with this, we often hear that compromise is key, that everyone just needs to either give or take a little bit, and boom, problem solved, right? However, in your book, you argue that compromise doesn't work, especially not as the first step when you're dealing with the sexual desire discrepancy. So can you tell us why that is and what you should do instead when you and your partner really get out of sync when it comes to sex? Yeah, I really liked writing this chapter because it was something that I hadn't, it kind of organically came up as I was writing the book because there are a lot of pieces of this book that I've been writing about for years because I've been writing about sex for 10 years. And this part of the book, I was just coming up as I was writing and was like, okay, I know what I do to help my clients with like a desire discrepancy. Like what happens if somebody wants something and the other person doesn't? What happens when someone's libido is higher than the other person's? 
a lot of people's instinct is to get into this compromise model where it's like, okay, if you try the ball gag, then I'll do anal. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> like if we're doing, if the whole value system here is that we're doing pleasure, positive consent forward sex education, doing this sort of like tit for tat sex act exchange in your personal relationship doesn't actually honor pleasure, consent, or active choice, or really thinking about what it is that you want and why you want to do it. And so instead, I offer people kind of a different model, which is doing a conscious compromise. And so that kind of looks at like, what choices are you making? And why are you making them? Am I willing to try this kink thing that my partner wants to do? Does it feel okay for me to try that? Or is this really a very hard limit for me? And is our work actually dealing with the fact that we have this really big split in our desires of what we want to do. So it's less about like, how do I fold myself to continue to feel connected to my partner and fold my own boundaries to continue to feel that kind of false sense of security? Or can I do the work it takes to stand very firmly in myself and my limits and meet my partner in a different space that honors both of us? And sometimes that like, is tense and it might require like a big relationship shift or like people might open the relationship for that or sometimes they end the relationship for that. If you just continue down this path of I'll do this, if you do this, I'll do this, if you do this, you're really just like breaking so many of your own kind of rules and values and your own sort of model of what consent and pleasure really looks like. And I just feel like it would be so disingenuous to write a whole book about pleasure and consent and just be like, Oh yeah, just compromise. Like, I just don't think that's, that's it. <laughs> well, and when you talk about compromise, you know, the way we tend to think of it is, you know, it's an agreement that you come to, but no one's really happy with it <laughs> and, right. because no one's getting exactly what they want. And I think with these sexual compromises, I think you're spot on in terms of talking about how we need to honor our own sense of pleasure and autonomy and boundaries and what is really important to us in terms of our sexual values. And so it's not just a matter of, all right, you want sex every day. I only want it once a month. So we're going to do it once a week and just put it on the calendar. And then, you know, no one's really happy with that situation. <laughs> and there are all different kinds of ways of dealing with this. And, you know, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, some people just aren't a match for each other sexually. And you, they might be your best friend, but they might not be your best sexual partner. So, you know, part of this is figuring out what is right for everybody here in terms of the best path forward. And, you know, I've talked about this on the show before with other sex and relationship therapists. You know, some people are sort of trained under the model that every relationship should work. And your job as a therapist is to save the relationship at all costs. But that might not always be the best approach. Sometimes breaking up is, is the best path forward. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I also just want to say for listeners that are like, oh my God, we have this sexual incompatibility. We just have to break up. I find that oftentimes when clients come in with a sexual incompatibility and they're like, we just need to find a compromise for like how frequently we have sex. And then we end up working together. Like that incompatibility can be influenced by so many things. And sometimes it takes a lot or not even a lot, but just some excavating. And so like what is contributing to this cycle between the two of you? 
Is it emotional? Is it personal? Is it relational? Was there baggage that came up eight years ago that you haven't processed yet? Like our sex drives are actually quite sensitive to our context and our environment and our history. And so I think if we don't explore that, then you're not really, if you're slapping a little compromise bandaid over all of that, it's not going to go well. But there's other approaches. Anyway, second question about this breakup thing. So I definitely do not think it is in service of my clients to have my mission be to keep them together at all costs. I just don't think, especially in this modern day and age, that that is a responsible tact for me as a couples therapist. I am really big on the differentiation model, which I talk about in my book a lot. And that is really about getting very clear about who you are and what you are willing to do, not do, compromise, live without, live with, and really explore those limits for yourself very genuinely and authentically without caving under the pressure of being similar, 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 we're the same, we're compatible, everything's fine. Because all kind of new relationships start there, right? It's like this like oxytocin-fueled, we're so compatible, nobody will ever break us up, we're so special, la, 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 the limerence phase. Great phase. It always ends. And then we need to find a path forward. And that's sort of that differentiation path. So for me, if I have a couple in my office who does a lot of really hard work of exploring themselves, the relationship, what they're willing to do, what they're not willing to do, what's important to them, and they decide at the end of that, that ending the relationship is the healthiest thing for them, great, we have done our job. I don't want anyone coming in here and falsely or inauthentically just being like, fine, I'll just stay in the relationship or whatever, I'm just going to leave. The idea is like, we're here to do some digging. If we do the digging and we find what we find and we're committed to that thing that we find, then great. I have helped plenty of couples break up in a way that felt productive and like it honored the relationship to them. And that work is just as important to me as my couples who like worked through early infidelity and then like sent me their engagement photos. I'm happy for both of those people. I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I think it makes a really important point that what a successful outcome is in the world of sex and relationship therapy might look very different for different people with different sets of problems. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Yana. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of Hot and Unbothered? Yes, I can. First of all, you asked great questions. So good for you. you. (laughs) I really appreciated those. So I can be found mostly on Instagram at the underscore V spot, V like vagina. Professionally, I have a website. It's yanatalonhicks.com. It's just my name.com. You can get my book anywhere you buy books. You can also get it with the link in my bio on Instagram or on my website. And otherwise, I'm going to be posting a reading and virtual tour schedule soon. And yeah, keep in touch, get my book. And I'll be sure to include links to everything in the show notes. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.